Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, how is everything going? Things are going all right this morning, Steve. How is everything uh, going where you are? You know, that's good to hear. I am A-OK, which OK is my new great. So surviving and uh, getting through life. So um, what are we going to talk about today? So today we are talking about a quite sad story from the past week or so, which is the tragic death of the founder and CEO of Zappos, Tony Shea. And the reason that we're going to talk about this is because Tony embodied so many of the principles that we espouse and write about, and yet he still succumbed to um, the end of his life. It sounds like a mix of pretty bad mental illness, addiction, loss of touch with reality. Uh, This is a guy that wrote a book called Delivering Happiness in 2010. So the whole thing is, it's the kind of situation that makes your brain hurt when you first hear about it. It's really sad. Uh, But, you know, Steve, when we got on the phone and connected, we also saw how given the, the the flow of his life over the past 10 years, this this downfall wasn't exactly surprising. So first off, we're so, so sorry about the loss of just such a positive, inspirational person that did so much good in the world. He really did. He wasn't just the typical tech CEO that tried to change the world, but the way that Zappos treats their employees, totally a Tony Shea project, really revolutionized how companies think about treating their employees. Um, We're not here to criticize. We are simply here to observe. He's a public figure, and we think that his story um, and his relentless pursuit of success that led to a a death at the age of 45 um, is worth talking about so we can try to understand it a little bit more. I think a little context is is helpful for those that are unfamiliar with who Tony Shea is um, and, and, and what he's done other than found and lead Zappos. So um, he is an Asian American, and he became pretty obsessed early on in his career, not just with building a, a good company, but also with achieving happiness. And at times, my reading of his writing on this was very grounded in reality, At other times, it seemed like he was chasing this kind of utopian outcome that just seemed impossible. And I don't have the words. It's like you have this soul that just wants to be content, just wants to be happy, just wants everything to be okay for him, the people that he loves. Um, and, And he had pretty grandiose visions about climate change, so wanted the world to be good and believed that it was possible for everything just to be good and happy. And I think that once he latched on to that belief, again, around 2010, when he wrote this book, Delivering Happiness, that, looking back, is to me when the red flags start to go up. Yeah, I I would agree. And I think adding some contacts and nuance in there, and in addition to Zappos, what he also did was he revitalized a downtown district in Las Vegas, trying to turn it into going from like a seedy part of town into 
like a workplace arts cultural tech kind of hub right um towards the end of his life he tried to get friends actually paying people to come out to um, park city utah to again create some sort of like utopia uh to a degree um and it's just interesting tracking through his life on like the vision um and purpose of like creating a better world and, and going through that and doing that is, is very clear and comes through with extreme clarity. But I think, you know, like anything in life or like most things, we tend to see it on a, um, you know, almost as black and white, but, you know, from our research and understanding a lot of these ideas and topics that are, are quote unquote good, have like nuance behind them in the in the sense that even um aspirational quality you know goals and gains like have have potential downsides behind them and and that's something that we covered in in our latest book which is the passion paradox which is i'm sure we'll get into on passion being a great thing but also can have downsides as well Mm -hmm. and from all the reporting that I've read, the the last year of Tony's life were when things really got rough, precipitated by COVID. It seems that COVID forced a slowdown of his usual pace of life, as it has for all of us. And in that slowdown, it forced Tony to just have open space, to not immediately have the next big conference that he was throwing to not immediately be able to go into work and work on the next project amongst his peers. And in that space, you feel emptiness. All of us do. We're humans. And it seems that he could not grapple with that emptiness and was really hurting inside facing that emptiness. Um, And that's when he started to turn to, it seems nitrous oxide was the main substance that he became addicted to. Um, also got really involved in biohacking. So reports say that he became obsessed with intermittent fasting. Um, and there's a fine line between intermittent fasting and starving yourself. He was only sleeping one hour a night. He was yet to the outside world, to his friends, saying that he was doing all this in the name of being super focused on health. He did an entire hike barefoot, um, like a pretty wilderness hike barefoot. So kind of, you know, you step back, it's like this guy's going off the rails. And it's just so sad that this happened in a culture where instead of being able to say, hey, you're going off the rails, those around him said, oh, this is great. You're toughening up your feet by going backwards. Oh, you're not sleeping. You're doing polyphasic napping. That's even better for your telomeres oh, you're not eating. That's going to boost your mitochondria. Um, We've talked a lot about what we call bro science, biohacking. It's really fucking harmful. And I tweeted about this and people got mad at me. They're like, well, like, might there be some good? I'm like, no. You know, it's a really harmful thing. And is it what killed Tony Shea? No. But the problem is that it can take these behaviors that are not healthy and give people a way to say, look at me, you're telling me I'm not healthy. I'm doing all this stuff in the name of health. So there's a lot to unpack there. I, I'm a little bit all over the place. I think it's it's kind of starting with the bro science, the biohacking, 
that was all brought on by not being able to stay busy pursuing the success that he was so accustomed to. Yeah. And the the final part I'll I'll mention there, and then we'll kind of dive into these different categories is uh, the singer Jewel wrote uh, Tony Shea a letter before he before he died, and it's excerpted to a degree in this this article in Forbes. And I think it's it's so sad, but also so powerful. Um, and she FedEx this letter to him because he'd gone on a internet social media text technology fast, which again is one of those things which is probably good in to a degree. But if you take it too far, it can cut you off from, you know, the, the world because that is how we communicate. And just just quoting Jules' letter um, again before he passed away, she said, I am going to be blunt. I need to tell you that I don't think you are well and in your right mind. I think you are taking too many drugs that cause you to dissociate the people you are surrounding yourself with are either ignorant or willing to be complicit in you killing yourself. I don't have words to describe even just reading that. I can't imagine even, you know, power to jewel for, for writing that. But I think that sums up another part of this is that when you're in a position of power, it can be difficult, like surrounding yourself with people who can give you the truth. And it can be difficult almost um, creating a world where the truth is what you believe it to be and not like the unvarnished re- reality that it actually is. By all accounts, like Tony Shea was a phenomenal person who did some phenomenal things um, and had like a, again, a, a very hopeful vision of the future. And I think that's why it serves as like unpacking this to a degree because it gets at some out so many of their, 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 these topics that are important and even more important in those of us who are quote unquote pushers trying to like grow and develop. And I think a lot of times we can rationalize, rationalize our growth and development and looking for, you know, ways to better ourselves that can turn to the dark side. So, why don't we start and with to better the world? Like that's the part that breaks my heart. This isn't an evil person. It's yeah. a great person. And it sounds like his pain and sorrow at the root of it was he had this utopian vision for the world that was unrealizable. And he couldn't accept that the world wasn't going to be the place that he wanted it to be. And I think that we all feel this at some point in our life it seems that he felt it much more strongly or lacked the counsel to be able to cope with it. And we've written about this in The Passion Paradox, right? To found a company and a successful company, you literally have to be delusional. And I don't say that as a joke. 99.9% of startups fail. 99.9999% of startups never become billion-dollar unicorns. So when you look at those odds and you say, oh, I can do this, by definition, you're detached from reality because reality would say that's a terrible choice. Going to a seedy part of Las Vegas and saying, I'm going to make this like a utopian village sounds really freaking out there. And if it was me or Steve that called each other and said that, I'd probably be like, hey, me, like, you know, are you off your meds? What's going on here? But he founded Zappos. So it's totally like realistic. 
So I, I think what Steve alluded to and what I'm really harping is we, if we're judging anything, we are just doing it to unpack and learn. Because it's not that Tony Shea was like this problematic person. It's the opposite. He's an extraordinary freaking person. And yet this still happened to him. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction there. Um, and it's it's something that I think can happen while we tend to see it in, you know, uh, maybe people who are public figures and highly successful. It happens at a much smaller scale uh, with just individuals who are, again, uh, have similar personalities and similar, you know, goals and ideas on growth of both individual and local community and, and whatever they have you. Um, so it can happen to all of us. Right. All right. Let's, let's try to do this in order. Acceptance. So I think the first thing that is a really important lesson is that, and we, we were texting about this, Steve, after we both had read the Forbes, art, excuse me, the Forbes article, life is great, but life also sucks. <laughs> and it is not something that we are taught in the West it's certainly not something in Silicon Valley where the whole goal is to basically create this better world that is often spoken about. But there is hunger. There is climate change. We're all going to die. There is cancer. And to get really kind of into the, the weeds on the, the human condition, Eric Fromm, who longtime listeners know I love, there's just pain that comes with being born a human. When you leave the womb, you are no longer connected to Mother Earth, like, like, like nature. When you're in the womb, you're nature. When you're out, you are a discrete individual. And there is such a tension between being an individual in the world and also wanting to be held by the world and loved. And again, we all feel this. He seems like someone that thought that he could somehow overcome that or problem solve around it. And it's that same drive that allowed him to start Zappos that he probably thought he could problem solve his way out of this. But to date, no human has problem solved their way out of this. And so many of the romantic writers and poets and, and, and producers that have tried, they generally end up sick, if not dying by suicide. It's really freaking hard. Yeah, you know, to me, it comes down to this kind of like mismatch of expectations in reality. And I, I'm, I'm going to go because I always do with the running analogy here. But if I enter a race and I'm, let's say, a, a 430 miler, and I have all the expectations in the world and belief and optimism that I'm suddenly going to run a four minute mile. Well, a, about halfway through that race, maybe a little sooner like reality hits and I spiral bad, right? Because I'm not going to reach my goal. It like the fatigue pain, like is going to smack me in the face. Things go, go bad quick. And I think to degree that happens in this, no matter what we're doing outside of this kind of athletic world is it's this, this kind of mismatch between expectations and reality. And then what you mostly find is that, no, they don't need to match up completely, but they've got to be in the, in the same ballpark for things. And sometimes when we accomplish a lot early on and do some amazing things, 
that we get this, our, our expectations almost become to, to agree uh, falsely inflated. And I mentioned this on, uh, on another uh, recent podcast, but in reading a, a biography on Abraham Lincoln, it was interesting because the biographer essentially said Lincoln was the man for the job and survived all of these extreme optimists who thought, hey, we can, you know, avoid war and do all these things and keep everybody peaceful and solve slavery at the same time. But Lincoln was what they called a tragic optimist, which means he had indelible hope for the future, but he was able to see the reality and the difficulty and accept the discomfort and struggle that, that like, you know, dealing with abolish or trying to abolish slavery and unite a union and div- dealing with the civil war required. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot of power to that. And interestingly, the, again, the research in history kind of shows that where did Lincoln get that tragic optimism? It's probably from dealing with what they called melancholy and what we call depression uh, for the entirety of his life kind of gave him that expectation. So I think, again, it's like, I see it as, okay, what's the takeaway message is making sure you're checking in and, and reaffirming and having those in your sphere that can help you like ground yourself in reality, even if you're having success after success after success. I agree with everything you said. Here's the the pointed question that I have for myself and for you. Could Tony have started Zappos and made Zappos what it is? Could he have revitalized this CD district in Las Vegas if he had sane expectations? Um, possibly. <laughs> like, is this the cost of greatness? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, I think again, it, 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 so in some senses, you have to be delusional, but you have to be delusional within, like, um, within a, a realm. You know, it's like, it's like the difference between being Elliot Kipchoge and saying when he was a two hundred three marathon, or saying, you know what. Two sub two hours sounds really freaking hard and impossible, but I believe I can I can do it. I believe that I can I can get within that realm. For the rest of it, it sounds insane, but it's within his wheelhouse enough that like it's a stretch, but it's possible. And I I think again I'm the sucker for running analogies, but I think no, that, this is a good one. I know where you're going because we talk about running a lot. <laughs> But but I think the same. Going to the four hundred or the five k. What you going to the four hundred or the five (laughs) k? Um, I don't know. But you 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 get where what I'm saying on uh, on this, right? Because it's yeah. If Kipchoge said like, oh, I can go under two in the marathon, so therefore I can also be a world champion four hundred runner, or I can throw the shot put exactly better than anyone. That's when it's like, nope. So what you're saying is it's okay to be a little delusional in one realm if you've got evidence that you can be delusional in that realm. But the problem comes when that delusion starts spreading to everything and you think that you can solve every problem and be the best at everything. Perfect. That's it. Eloquently said. But it's it's like Zappos, like obviously he had a talent like and, you know, ability and vision to start a company 
and to, you know, um, reform, you know, how things are. But like, if that gets extended out to, okay, I'm, I'm awesome at, you know, um, you know, creating a vision, company, culture, etc. But now I'm going to apply that to, well, if I'm awesome at that, I might be awesome at extending my life through all of these ideas, concepts in science, which might not be my forte. Right. And wanting to be happy. I think that my, my reading of some of these other stories around him, a lot of the biohacking was he was feeling sad and he thought that these things would make him happy. Yep. Or make him well, I should say. Yeah. Uh, which is a trap because the worst way to be happy is to desperately try to be happy. It, we're going to go on a biohacking rant because we should, because we haven't in a long time. Before that, I want to throw out one thing that I think is fascinating. When, I, when we talk about Tony and you talk about tragic optimism, I was thinking, like, is there anyone that truly tries to solve all the world's problems, is, is very smart, has had great success, but has not suffered bad mental illness or at least unchecked bad mental illness? And you know who comes to mind? Bill Gates. And Bill Gates is the ultimate tragic optimist because he's a sad dude. Like, I shouldn't say he's a sad dude, but like you hear him talk, he's not like upbeat. He lives in reality. And he had gone through so much suffering early in his life with the, the loss of his mother when he was young. Um, it's very, he's talked about having like family counseling when his marriage almost fell apart. So it's like he is grounded in the shittiness of life that he can still try to solve all the problems but accept the fact that life still sucks. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was thinking the same person, so I'm glad you (laughs) you brought it up. And I think the other part of that is, like, Gates, you know, picks on problems and then gets experts in those fields who have the knowledge and understanding. So he picks the Kipchoge of vaccines, right? To, to help them understand, like, what's where's reality? What's the limit? Can I help you find find a different path forward, maybe with, like, combining your expertise? And I think that is, that is you know, a, a clear difference. And that comes with a little bit of um, that tragic optimism or, like, humility and understanding what you know and what you don't know. And, and, and I'm going to come back to the acceptance portion where – Certainly, from everything I've read about Bill Gates, viewed in his documentaries, heard him speak, Bill Gates has the mindset of like a lot of things suck and we're going to do the best we can anyways. And if things still suck at the end of the day, I'm going to read a really good book the next day because I love reading. So, like, he still grounds himself in the fact that if, if his efforts fail, he's not a failure and you can still have joy in life even when life sucks. Um, whereas it seems like and again, this is all just based on the bevy of reporting over the past two weeks. Tony was so idealistic and so optimistic that he didn't want to hear that life also sucks. And um, it's like that's just a failure of the people around. I mean, it's not failure is way too harsh of a word. It's a tragedy is what it is. That's the word I'm looking for. And particularly, here's the segue. And if kids are listening... You know, maybe have them cover their ears because it is very hard for me to not get super upset and swear when I talk about biohacking. Biohacking fucking preys on this tragedy because biohacking says life doesn't have to suck. You don't have to die. You don't have to age. You don't have to feel sad. You don't have to sleep. 
And here's something that you can take or here's some special program that you can do that will make you invisible. And by the way, you're going to pay me for it. And after three months of trying really hard, making yourself physically ill in the process, you're going to fail because there are some inevitabilities about life that suck. And not only are you going to be physically sick, but you're going to be mentally ill because you'll have failed. So the best freaking biohacking would be to get everybody in cognitive behavioral therapy or acceptance commitment therapy where you learn that parts of life just suck and you can work to make them better, but you have to accept that they might not get better. And that is so antithetical to what biohacking is, which is every every problem can be solved. Yeah, it's that every problem that can be solved that is that is, I think, the ultimate issue there. And it creates a false sense of control. Um, where there really isn't, right? And, you know, I, I think biohacking... I, Why don't you define it, Steve? I just ranted a little. I, my blood pressure is getting high. But define biohacking for the listeners that come to us from more of the corporate world where this is new. Sure. So to me, it, it, it's defined by pseudoscience in the sense that we think that we can extend our life like live better, live healthier, et cetera, by, by doing these certain things to hack or shortcut our way towards, um, you know, all these better health expectations. So the example is, I'll give a couple examples, polyphasic sleep. So instead of sleeping seven, eight, nine hours a night, you sleep, you know, I don't, know exactly, but an hour here, wake up, work, hour there, and you've got these naps scheduled throughout the day. The other biohacking stuff is, you know, um, extreme fasting to activate, you know, anti-aging quote-unquote properties or, or increase mitochondria or increase like your telomeres, which is like the ends of your uh, genes to increase health. And what often happens on these biohacking is they, they narrow down onto one small component, one small thing that like is good, and then blow that up to the extreme, right? So the example I like to give and Brad loves this, is there's this pathway called mTOR, which w- when activated is tied to things like muscle growth and, and, and anabolic, being in an anabolic state and other such benefits. And that's true. It works in that degree. You know, I spent several grad school lessons in exercise science learning about mTOR and muscle growth. And if you activate it with lifting, for example, you do tend to get more muscle growth, hypertrophy, and things like that. But what's happening, but it's one of, as my grad school professor liked to say, it is one of literally probably hundreds and thousands of pathways that is activated, the majority of which we have no idea about. There is no one pathway that is the key to anything. The human body is more complex than that. And we um, <laughs> we mistake ourselves uh, when we simplify it to such to to that degree. Right. Yep. So there's so there's the bullshit on the physical. I can real quick step in and say the same thing is true on the psychological, because, again, it sets this expectation that we can solve these, quote unquote, problems of well-being 
instead of not defining them as problems to begin with and say, you're a human, you're going to like, these aren't problems. This is part of being a human. And I just wish that the skills about suffering and suffering well and coping with mortality were taught at the same intensity that the attempts to avoid these realities um, are. And And I need to be careful because I, if I put myself in the shoes of a super idealistic, optimistic, young biohacking scientist that says, death sucks, I want to live forever. I, I, can, I, I, I can appreciate that. And I'm glad that that scientist is doing that work. But I don't think that that is like a healthy mindset. I just don't. I think you have to at least accept that I'm probably going to die and it's going to be okay if I die. And I'm going to do everything I can to try to find out how to live forever. Right. I mean, I, I think that's the difference there is it's biohacking is grounded in pseudoscience and like real explorations of understanding like longevity and health over a long period of time is grounded in doing the research and in the science, right? Yeah, that's such an important point because we're not here to bash longevity researchers. Um, If there was a pill that would like get rid of bad depression, we should have that pill and everyone experiencing bad depression should take that pill. Um, I think that's a really important nuance. This is where it's lacking the true rigor and scientific grounding because any true scientist with that rigor would understand how incremental the changes are and how hard it is. Exactly. And you could come up with a protocol that first works, but also acknowledges the downsides and the struggles of it. No different than we do when we look at any sort of drug or vaccine or whatever it is that we're going to take, which I think is often missed when we dive into the world of biohacking as the sense of, oh, we're going to go through this fasting period or whatever have you without acknowledging that like, hey, there are a lot of potential downsides and this is going to be much more difficult than you think. And it might not even pay off and give you the upsides that that you want. In a lot of ways, like general exercise is biohacking but it's done in it's scientifically validated right it's done in a way that we know what we're doing in the sense that no one is saying hey go run uh 40 miles every day and that's the key to run to um living longer we have norms and expectations and understanding of what what gives you the bang for the buck and what is too much and going to lead to overtraining and be too much of quote unquote a good thing and I think in the biohacking world, that's where you you lack that in the sense that, hey, you know, fasting every once in a while might be okay um, to some degree. I don't know. But like if you take it to the extreme, it's like going out for a 40-mile run every day and saying, hey, you said exercise is great and it helps you live longer and decreases my risk for cancer and heart disease and all that stuff. All I'm doing is exercising. Right. And I think that with... Um with fasting in particular, because that's the one where we always get a lot of pushback. I think there's a difference between fasting and caloric deprivation, right? The human body is really adaptable. I don't think it would be very fun. I think I'd probably be grouchy all the time, but I bet that I could eat one meal a day and be pretty healthy. 
and and maybe not. Maybe there's a, there's doctors being like, Brad, what are you doing? Now you're going off the deep end. But if I had like a 2,500 calorie meal a day, my body would probably adapt to that. Stan McChrystal, the army general, he was known for that because eating took too much time when he was deployed. Um, again, I, I don't think it's ideal. I think I'd be grumpy. I'm not suggesting anyone does it. But that's very different than caloric deprivation, which is starving yourself. And again, I think these two things get confused really simply. Starving yourself is a mental illness that has the highest death rate of any mental illness. And there's such a fine line between eating at certain times and trying to lose weight and all this and starving yourself that it gets really dangerous. So I think what makes intermittent fasting, and this is a little aside, interesting is of all the biohacking principles... I do think that it has the most value for particular patient populations that could benefit from losing weight. It also by far has the most risk and downside. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, I think you, that nuance there or that distinction, I should say, um, is an important one. And then that one is often missed, you know, as I'm listening to us talk here, listening to what you're saying, I think it gets back to this idea of, which is kind of the overarching one, which is, there aren't like good and bad things. It all depends on the dose, right? The yeah, dose. even and that gets back to um to Tony Shea's idealism. <laughs> exactly. Like it's it's the idealism again, I'm gonna go back to Lincoln, but it's the idealism that, hey, we can form a more quote unquote more more perfect union and be better out of this, but it's the reality of facing what you're facing now. It's the idealism of, hey, I think a sub two hour marathon is possible, but this is going to be really freaking difficult and take everything on that I have. Yep. And and I'm going to bring it back to Tony Shea and like the, the biohacking, both for physical and mental health world. And what I would say there is it is humans are going to feel sad. Humans are going to feel empty. Humans are going to feel anxious. Humans are going to die. Humans are going to age. Humans are going to experience decline in physical and cognitive performance. If you can accept all of that and truly accept it and not forget about it, then you can spend your whole life trying to problem solve and quote unquote beat the game on all of those things and probably be okay. Because if you fail, you'll have already accepted that this is a reality. I think where Tony, it seems, lost touch is he couldn't accept like the suckiness of life. And um, that's really like it's it's it sounds so easy for us to do this armchair analysis in Monday morning, like cornerback, like this is a life lost. And a big part of the reason that I can sit here and say this is because I got really sick with obsessive compulsive disorder. Listeners have heard that story, you know, enough times. I don't need to tell it again, but like I texted Steve, I'm like, man, I don't wish that that happens to anyone else, but reading stories like this, I am so grateful that that happened to me because these skills are, particularly around acceptance and experiencing difficult emotions and not trying to push them away and being okay with them. That was so freaking foreign to how I was raised, which is if you're sad, there must be a way to be happy. Yeah. You know, I, again, I think there's, you know, this sounds strange to say, but there's benefits to like going through some sort of mental health issue and coming out on the other side of it that gives you a, a, a an appreciation and understanding for, some of life's struggles and difficulties. And it's, you know, zooming out to 
Not but it. I wish that you didn't have to get sick to go through it. Excuse me, to, to gain those learnings. Like, I wish you didn't have to go through being sick to gain those learnings. Like, why, why couldn't, why, and I don't know, now I'm, I'm at a loss for words because this stuff really makes me sad, but it's like, why can't it be a part of the culture to accept the crappy things and then to still push really hard? Why can't Bill Gates be the model, not the person that just refuses to accept the shittiness? And this is not a character flaw. If anything, you could say, how admirable is that, that Tony refused to accept the shittiness? Because he's working on behalf of all of us to get rid of the shittiness. But it ultimately was a big part of what led to his downfall. At least it seems that's the case. Yeah, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, I I think part of it is like the culture that we've um cultivated and adapted to is one of storytelling in the sense that we want to see the successes we want to see anything as possible we're taught from a young age that like we can accomplish anything if we put our mind to it and the emphasis is is almost like that adage of you know um grabbing yourself by your bootstraps and and getting work done. And anybody has that possibility. It's like the American dream to a degree. And it's exacerbated by today's media, social media, et cetera, kind of culture. And and to to a degree, it leads to some wonderful and fantastic things, but it also creates this false expectation where eventually you have to come face to face with reality. And it sounds, it sounds a little silly, but like, Think about when you're in uh, grade school and you're told that you can be president if you want to or be almost anything and, and boosting this um, this self-esteem, right? And it has good intentions, but we know, <laughs> again, from... Oh, the baby boomers got the self-esteem thing so wrong. Yep, exactly. They, you know, we know they got it entirely, entirely And I'm not wrong. just saying that. Yeah, there's all these studies that yeah. like the self-esteem movement that our parents were a part of because everyone was, has done nothing but bad. Exactly. So it's like a thing that seems good, which is telling people like, hey, you're great. You can be great. You can do whatever you want. Like on the surface, on the superficial level, it seems like, oh, this is awesome. But then you dive down into like the reality and you're like, oh, never mind. And I think that's very similar to a lot of these things that we fall prey to in terms of um, unhabituated optimism or like, hey, I'm trying to live longer by being extremely healthy and following all these things, which seems great on the surface. But like when you dive underneath, underneath the surface, it's like, oh, it quickly falls apart. It's super capitalism. Does yeah. that make sense? Or you need yeah. me to explain? No, it makes sense. Yeah. It's like, because everything, there's a solution for all these things, right? Like you want to be like, buy this product, buy this program, drive this car, and then, and then, and then. So of course, the society wants expectations to be high uh, because that's like, that's how the machine runs. But the nuance, and it's it's something that Steve, you know, we've talked about quite a bit, but it's still like so hard for me to grasp at times is non-duality, holding two seemingly opposing ideas at the same time. Because the flip side of this is like 
total acceptance of the shittiness of life and going around saying everything sucks, there's nothing I can do about it, I might not I might as well not try. That's not a good way to live either. Like by by some measures that's clinical depression. So back to where you started, tragic optimism. It's about holding that everything sucks at the same time as I can do anything to try to make the world better and having both of those ideas together not having either one dominate. I really think that's it. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm glad that we got here because I think this is probably, you know, as much fun as it is to rant against biohacking, this is probably the most important point of the conversation. Yeah, you know, I, I think it is. I think uh, we harp on this all the time, but that non-dualistic thinking is so important. And we've got to get beyond this idea that, you know, things are good, things are bad, and instead see the nuance of of them, you know, and see the how the dose makes the poison. And if we can come to terms with that, then they think we're in a in, in a much better place, and we're we're almost um, minimizing or vaccinating ourselves against some of the downfalls that comes with um, too much. We'll say passion in the wrong direction, right? Or too much, um, you know, search for for health or happiness or whatever it, it, it is. It has to be grounded in something much deeper than just you know, hey, this is this is good. And it's often chasing those big, bright, shiny objects that seem so energizing and motivation, excuse me, and motivating that, again, non-dual causes you to lose your ground. Uh, because the more that you're chasing these big things, the less time you have for your neighbors and for sleep and for sane exercise. So it, it it's not to say that we shouldn't try to do these big things in the world, but if all you're doing is the big things in the world and you completely forget about your your metaphorical roots, then you're in big trouble. There um around this around the same time that the Tony Shea story broke, there was another just tragic story. I'm forgetting the behavioral scientist's name, but basically like one of the founders of positive psychology um, died of suicide. And this was a long time ago that he died. But uh, Jen, I think her last name is Jen Senior, a writer for the New York Times, did this big profile of him. And there was something in there that just really struck me. And that is one of his colleagues, after he died, basically said, I'm done. I'm done trying to publish. I don't want this position anymore. I'm going to move to a small town and just like work a nine to five job, support my family, I'm done chasing because this freaking guy founded positive psychology, but the race for conventional success, for publishing more papers, for lecturing at more prestigious conferences, um, for more citations, like even if you know everything there is to know, and these are empirical things like hedonic adaptation, this guy, like the science is real, yet he couldn't follow it because the, the force of getting swept up in the chase is really, really, really freaking powerful. So this is on my mind a lot because, you know, Steve, we've got we've both got books coming out in the next year and a half, and we always talk about wanting to write more books. 
and I hope that my publisher and agent's not listening, but there's a part of me that's like, if this book sells a gazillion copies, I just want to breed German shepherds. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to breed German shepherds. I'm just going to go on long runs every day in the woods and, um, and hang out with my wife and friends and that'll be it. But no, I mean, there, there's, it, it, it can be easy to get sucked down into it. And there's, and for periods of your life, I understand it. But I think that, you know, zooming back out a bit, I think it's, it's how do you stay grounded in both reality and what matters to you? Right. Even when the bright and shiny objects are, are sexier and tastier, right? Like waking up early to take a puppy out and pick up its shit is never as enticing as being interviewed, you know, by cable news or like blowing up social media because your project's on fire. But in the moment, it's not. But in the long haul, if you were to spend a year every morning taking out a puppy versus doing that other stuff, 99.99, unless you have like a deadly allergy to dogs, you'd be happier taking out the puppy. Right. And that's that's the thing on some of these things that it's like the short term versus long term. Long term, like that puppy or that experience gives us a, a sense of contentment, right? Yes. But the short-term, like, boost of that, you know, interview on cable news or social media blowing up is so powerful that we mistake it as something that, like, is consistent and over time. You know, one of my uh, – a good friend and then a, a, a mental strength coach, uh, Brian Zuliger – told me once that we've got motivation all wrong to a degree because we think we need to get motivated. But if you're motivated to don't do something, you don't, you, you don't have those ebbs and flows. And as examples, it was like, if you're motivated to go run every day, it's not like you get this giant high from going run running every day for 30 minutes or an hour. It just becomes something that is normal and brings you the sense of contentment that you don't realize until you like zoom out, take perspective. But we mistake like these highly motivating, like singular moments as like, Oh, like this is what it's about. Like the social media hit when it's not, we just can't see the long term effects of some of these things. Right. And, and again, non, non dual would say that there's a way and it takes a lot of time and practice and adjusting, but that there's a way to chase the things that you really want to chase without leaving the puppy behind. And cat, puppy, church, mosque, synagogue, hike, cousin, the things that like actually ground you. And that is another really important non-dual message and it seems like in the tragic case of Tony Shea, he lost those things. He was literally paying people to come try to create a utopian world with him in the months before he died. All his friends were saying that they were pushed away. So I think that there's another moral here, which is, sure, go create the utopian world, but do it 50% of the time. The other 50% of the time, pick up your dog shit. Yep. Because picking up your dog shit might actually be what gets you more fulfilled and content. Yep. Man, tough stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's tough stuff to kind of wrap your head around. And I think that's what makes it difficult, but it's also what makes it worthwhile. And I think, you know, one of the big takeaways I have on this is like, make sure you're surrounding yourself with people who kind of can give you that perspective and, and step in if need be. And I think that's more and more important um, now than ever. That seems like a really um, a really good note to end on. We are really, really sad and sorry that this visionary died so young for his friends, family, community. It's just awful. Like we said, we're, we're not trained psychiatrists. We never met Tony. We are just using his story and what's been reported as a jumping off point on some of these topics. Um, there's a chance that Tony just had an underlying manic or schizophrenic disorder and it popped up right now and that's what happened and there's not much more to say. So um, we said this at the outset, but I really want to be sensitive. The whole point of this was to unpack some of these things because we respect Tony so much and because it's such a tragic story. So please, 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 um, we hope that there is no judgment. If there was any judgment in our tone, it's judging the people selling the bullshit biohacking. But Tony was like a beautiful soul. He did so much good work um, and he died too soon. And and that's just sad. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.